Today, what I'd like you to do on September the 3rd, 2023, I'd like you to look at Judah and Assyria. But I don't want you to look at them as people living today. I want you to do some time travel. I want us to go on vacation together. I just can't let go of vacation. Let's go on vacation together. So we're going to go back in time. And instead of doing September 3rd, 2023, we're going all the way back to 701 B.C. Now, it doesn't have to be September 3rd, but hey. Now, one of the keys to understanding this is understanding the capital of Assyria at the time was Nineveh. And so if we take a look, we're going to do three things this morning, God willing. Thing one, I'm going to be tour guide Barbie. And uh, except I'd be Ken, sorry. Tour guide Ken. And uh, we're going to take a tour of Nineveh. We're going on vacation together to Nineveh. Then we're going to go on vacation together and tour Jerusalem as it was in 701 B.C. with King Hezekiah. And then after we've toured both places, we're going to take an in-depth look at the conflict that arose. I would like you to do this in a way that's not just a vacation where we're touring together, but one where you've already got in your mind this focus point. How do you handle the conflicts and the wars and the great challenges and difficulties of life? Because I believe if you'll keep that in your mind as we look through this, you will find some encouragement as well as some focus points to help you in any conflict, in any war, in any uh, uh, huge insurmountable problems you might be facing in your life. So this has instructional value, hopefully just being delivered in a way that is a little bit more enticing perhaps than than if I just said hey do these three things have a good day and let's go all right so let's start together let's go on tour in Nineveh this drawing by Sir Henry Layard is is a drawing by the fella who principally uh, uh, excavated Nineveh in the 1800s I think his actual drawing is now in the care and custody of the monarchy. So that would be King uh, Charles, isn't that his name? Yeah, because I just call him Charlie and I don't remember. Um, no, I don't. Uh, I, I would, don't know him. I don't know what I'd call him. I guess King, but he's not my king. Anyway, Tour of Nineveh. This drawing is pretty accurate. Scholars say, you know, that's actually a pretty good drawing of what it may have looked like. I mean, they wouldn't have looked like those people sitting down there with their bulls and goats, but the city itself, pretty good. Now, how do you build a city like that? It takes a lot of do-re-mi, right? It's a lot of slaves. It's a lot of booty that you've captured from your uh, uh, work, your, your plunder that you've gotten from your wars. It takes the war machine that was Assyria. I want to be able to show you a bunch of these slides, so I may wind up standing up here a bit more than normal. But this is an example of one of the Assyrian reliefs. It's carved into uh, stone and, and put in the palaces and, and various places. But this is part of the war machine that was Assyria. They're in a boat. They're rowing the boat. Uh, it's interesting uh, uh, to look at. Oh, this is the water. I'm not saying they were stellar artists, but it's still kind of cool. That's a crab who's eating a fish. So the fish must be little or the crab must be gargantuan because we use crabs for bait to catch fish. But, but this is the war machine that was Assyria. Here's another drawing. 
where you see them, the, uh, let's see if I can blow this up a little bit. Here you see the Assyrian soldiers sieging uh, the walls of a city. And they've got this ladder as a ramp to go charging up with their shields. They're throwing people down. They're crossing the, the trench down below to go into battle. And the people get thrown down. And when they get thrown down, they take their knives and they cut their heads off. That's them being de- beheaded. Uh, you can keep going over here. You've got the archers and they've got them one behind the other. That's the way they showed that they were in rows. And you're supposed to imagine just that going on and on and on. The archers shooting. And here, of course, uh, let's see. Go back down. Go back down. Hold on. Go back to the archers. Thank you. I'm talking to my hand. Um, these are their enemies that are being impaled on stakes. This is a vicious war machine that everybody was rightly scared of. The Assyrian Empire. It's the largest empire that we know of to that point in civilization and history. And so if we look at it, there are three cities that are really important in today's lesson. One is going to be the city of Nineveh, which at the time we're looking at is the capital of Assyria. A second is Jerusalem, which is down here, which is, of course, the capital of Judah. And then the third, we will look at the city of Lachish. Lachish was the second largest city in Judah. Now, Sargon II. Sargon II is a king. His father, Tiglath-Pileser, the third had kind of taken over the throne and died and Sargon II takes the throne and he reigns as the king of Assyria from 721 to 705. And he didn't have that much of a home life so he spent all of his time on the war path and, and, and that's what he does. And he gets the empire and he expands it into this massive empire It includes Nineveh. In Jerusalem, King Ahaz is paying tribute to Assyria. Lachesh and all of Judah, all of Philistia, the Philistines, all of Tyre and and, uh, uh, Sidon and, and the coastal cities, they're all paying the tax, if you will. They are being subject to, they're helping to fund the Assyrian Empire Dur-Sharkin is just north of Nineveh. That was the palace city, the headquarters uh, for Sargon. That actually uh, means, in a sense, uh, a fortress of, of Sargon. Uh, and, and so uh, that was his city. He didn't do that much in terms of his building. It wasn't all that great. And when he dies, ultimately coming into power is... Uh, uh, one of, whoops, get back up there. Sorry. Hold on. Hold on. When he, Sargon dies, there's his empire. Dot, 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 dot. See, I forgot how to do this while I was gone. Sennacherib, now, first Sennacherib, it's got like a brother who does it, but Sennacherib like knives his brother, kills him. Then Sennacherib takes over and he reigns in essence from 704 to 681. And he's inherited a pretty stable, pretty good empire because his daddy was at war all the time. So he's got lots of money. He's got lots of slaves. He's got lots of of taxation dollars that he's able to get from all of these places. And he decides he's going to build a new capital. And so he takes the ancient city of Nineveh and decides he's going to work on turning that into this brilliant new capital city. And that's what he does. Now there's a few problems, a few hiccups that happen. And one of the hiccups is down here. Because the king of Jerusalem is Hezekiah. And he's been on the throne over a decade now. He's in his 30s. And he decides, I'm not going to pay any more tribute to this pagan king because Hezekiah is a godly man. So Hezekiah quits paying. 
And not only that, he convinces the folks around him, including the coastal towns, hey, there's a new king of Assyria. It's the kid. Tough dad is gone. Let's rebel and quit paying tribute. After all, we're pretty far peace. And he's having trouble in some other places too. Now's the moment. So that's the background in 701 when you and I get to go play tourist at Nineveh. So we go to Nineveh. Let me tell you first of all that there are seven miles of walls that surround this city. Seven miles of walls. This city encompasses roughly 1,850 acres of land. At the time, that's a huge city. That's just under three square miles. If you were to say, all right, how big is that in terms of where we are? If this is Champion Forest Baptist Church, the size of the walls around the city, just go out there and build a wall. It would take us a while to build a wall around this church campus. But they have walled in an equivalent of going all the way up to Stubner Airline all the way past Champion Forest, or almost to Champion Forest, I should say, all the way over to Stubner, all the way down to 1960. They fenced in, walled in, with massive walls, that whole area. That's this huge city. They've not only walled in the city, but because the city's at the connection point of the Tigris and, and uh, a river and another river, it, it, it's got lots of water during most of the year. Not always. Sometimes the water runs a little bit low. And so for the dry seasons, our good king Sennacherib builds an aqueduct that runs 40 miles from the mountains to bring in water, fresh water. But he builds canals throughout the city. And so one of the reliefs that we've got that's been painted up shows the canals that lace through the city so that you've got water everywhere. It's almost a mini Venice in some ways. Now, if we're going to go on tour there, I need to warn you. We do not want to go in the summer. It is too stinking hot in the summer, it gets, this is modern day Iraq. In the summer, it gets hotter than it's been here. Yeah, that's why I left. <laughs> but here's Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, how are you going to get there? Well, you can easily get there by road because there are all these roads coming. You got the roads coming down from the north. You got the roads coming over from Turkey. You got the roads coming up from Babylon. You got the roads going out toward India. You got the roads coming over here. These red lines are roads. Nineveh is well connected. It's easy to get to if you want to walk. Ask Jonah. But you don't need to walk to get there. Because you've got the Tigris River. So we could also arise, uh, arrive on a kupa, which are the kind of boats that they used back then. Here's one from like 1900 uh, picture. And it's a kufar, which is the modern word for the kupa that they have. But these are reeds that have been woven together. And they put bitumen or tar on them to make them waterproof. And so it's a ferry, F-E-R-R-Y. It will ferry you into Nineveh. And they had docks there. So you could arrive by ferry, but if you're going to arrive by ferry, you want to come from the northwest. Otherwise, you're going against the current, and it's going to take you forever to get up there. Because they, they didn't have an Ebenrude or a Yamaha motor on those things. Now, once you get there, you got to get around. It takes three days to walk through that city. Fortunately, we know enough to know that they had places where you could rent a donkey. Uh, you, I, they really did. They had, like, rent a mule. And so you, you, when you go there, just take enough money to rent a donkey. They dealt mostly in silver. So you're going to need to take silver. Now, Sennacherib decides to build his kingdom there, or his capital there. And so he goes to work 
on what he called, these were his words, the palace without rival. He built the most spectacular palace the world had ever known. And this is after you've already got a city that's incredible. So the city has got 18 gates and the gates are all protected by these weird looking, they're called Lamassu, but this is a head of a person like wings of an eagle and the body of, of an ox or a lion or something, I don't know, but it's a weird one because it's got five legs. And, and his daddy had carved those in the stone as a picture in the stone at his palace. But son's got all of daddy's money and all of daddy's slaves. And so son has them carved out of massive rocks and hauled in like three-dimensional, the real McCoy. Um, then, if you go to the palace itself, he had the same Lamassu, but a different, not the five-legged guys, the four-legged. They were deemed to be spirits or gods that protected the king and they were in all the entrances to the throne room so we went to the british museum because this was a british explorer in the 1800s who found all this stuff and he shipped it off to the british museum a lot of it and we saw some of these and i want you to see them with me so that you get an idea so uh, uh here would you like to see the gods that protected Uh-oh. the Assyrian king on his throne here they are you ready? You say, whoa, that's not much. Yeah, this thing's massive. Absolutely massive. I've got to get so far away from it, and I still can't get it into the view. But this is one of two majestic gods that were protecting the walk into the temple. The, I mean, the throne of the king. These were the gods protecting it. By the way, the gods didn't do that good a job. His empire fell. The gods disappeared from your memory. You don't even know their names. These are the gods of antiquity. They're not gods who still are today sitting on a throne. The god we worship is the god who was then and is now and will be for all eternity. Yeah, the, the gods did not do a very good job protecting him or the empire. He winds up getting killed by two of his sons. Uh, uh, parasite, is that what that's called? Where your offspring kill you or something? Um, but if you took the reliefs, these carvings that, that he had on his palace walls, and you laid them out end to end, instead of having them like a bunch on a wall, he had one and a half miles of carvings on his walls. I mean, these, this is a, another drawing uh, by Sir Henry Layard. And this shows you how those stone big dudes would have been painted. Because all of this was painted. All of the reliefs were painted. If you go to the British Museum, you'll see some residual paint still on 2,700 years later. But you really want to go to the Assyrian rooms if you go. Now, not only if you're, if you're, if I'm back into tour guide Ken mode, you want to go there, you want to see, you're not going to be invited into the palace. Sorry. They don't trust you enough. But you might be able to get into the botanical gardens, and that would be really worth seeing. Because they brought in this water, and, and, uh, Sennacherib, for the, the botanical gardens, he had all of the different kinds of trees and plants from all over the empire put in there. So it was really spectacular. They also had a gift shop where you could buy some of the weird medicines and herbs that you might want from these plants. After all, business is business. This is an actual relief of the botanical gardens and it's hard to make out but you can see the columns in the back you can see some of the trees you can see the waterways 
that are in there. And that's what has been turned into that picture or this picture, which is another rendering of what it would have looked like. Absolutely stunning. This is not just some little hole in the wall. This is built by a war machine. Remember that. This isn't just, oh, a bunch of nice people making nice spaces. These are people living off the money and backs of others. Now, you don't want to miss the ziggurat. It's been around in some form or another for over a thousand years. It's that pyramid-shaped temple to Ishtar. And Ishtar was the goddess of warfare and passion. And uh, that complex had been in place for a long time. If you go there, the odds are uh, uh, you'll get there on a religious day because they have religious festivals almost all the time. And these are parades that go down the street and you'll have the priests and you'll have the musicians and you'll have the scribes and they'll be playing and singing and dancing as they celebrate some religious process or another. They're not pagans in the sense of a religious. They're pagans in the sense that they worship a pantheon of gods. Now, once a week, if you want to go to the theater, once a week they perform the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is the Assyrian account of the flood. Instead of Noah, you've got a fellow named Utnapushtim, and the gods uh, uh, tell Utnapushtim to build a boat. The flood comes, he's saved. Afterward, the gods are hungry because they didn't have anybody to feed them while he was, because they, they needed the sacrifices for food. And uh, it's a very different type of flood story, but it is the epic of Gilgamesh performed weekly in Nineveh. If you wanted to play a game for a long time, there had been the royal game of Ur, which is kind of equivalent to dice of sorts. And uh, you could play that game. There was lots to do. Tons of booths to get food with on the street. They were especially fond of beer. A lot of people made their own. So you could get craft beer, if you will. Uh, Honey cakes, big, big thing. Uh, they, they had lots of, of food stalls all around, so you'll have tons of places to eat. Now, uh, you won't want to eat with the king anyway. This is a slide that I showed you when we were talking through a minor prophet book. Uh, and this is a slide of a successor king, actually a son, who takes the throne ultimately. Um, uh, and, and he's uh, sitting there in his garden having his food and getting fanned. His queen's there with him. He's wearing the royal robes. He's got the, the crown uh, uh, on that makes him deity. Uh, this is the same king in the relief that's got, he got birds in the garden. He's got uh, the king of Edom's, I think, head hanging down from one of the trees from being beheaded. Uh, it's over there. You can kind of see it right up there. Yeah, that's the, that's the ex-king of Edom. These are vicious, vicious times and vicious people. And that is what makes this city. You can see he's got the slaves that are, are keeping the flies off of him and uh, fanning him. He's got his bow and stuff down here to show that he's a conquering king. He's able to sit and eat, but he's so strong. He's got his bow there if he ever needs it. And that, my friends, is your quick tour of Nineveh. Now, let's tour Jerusalem in Hezekiah's day. Remember I told you seven miles of walls surround the city, 1,850 acres in Nineveh? The capital of Judah, Jerusalem, um, wait, that was all less than three square miles. That's still Nineveh. Jerusalem, 25 to 50 acres. Nineveh's 50 times larger. If we were to take a, a reproduction of Jerusalem, 
you've got the older city here with these walls. You've got some more here. Let me try and bring it down and see if this makes sense. This is the Temple Mount. Here is the temple itself. Here are the courtyards uh, uh, of the temple. That's the corner tower. That's been built up. This is Solomon's temple. The Temple Mount, this area around it, was likely enlarged by Hezekiah to form this square platform that you've got extending out this way. Uh, Those twin towers back here, uh, together with the corner tower, were supposed to protect if an army was coming down from the north. So if you came, or coming up from the north, because it's on a hill. If you come up from the north, you've got guards and, and soldiers who can work from those towers. If we shift this model over a little bit, you'll see the king's palace was down on this side. You've got a gate to the valley. Come down here. This northern part of the city wall is called the broad wall. It has... 21 feet wide. It's a massive width to withstand the siege engines that people might bring. Hezekiah had a bunch of houses dismantled to build that because he knew when he rebelled, the Assyrians would send an army. So he rebels. He quits paying the taxes. He says, you know, See ya! Knowing they're coming. So they start taking apart houses using the rocks. You can still see if you go to Israel. The archaeologists have have been able to uncover some of the base of some of this 21 foot thick wall. Um, And so he has that done. The wall's also mentioned later on. A long stretch of the wall's been discovered. All right, let's keep going. You got the corner gate there, which is one place to enter. This western hill uh, uh, was under Hezekiah protected by a city wall. So what had happened is the Assyrians in the decades preceding had already conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. And a lot of the Israelites had come to Judah as refugees. And they were settling on the western hill. But they're outside the city walls. So Hezekiah says, they're going to be toast. So he builds a wall to go around them as well. And that's this new western wall. And it's brand new with him. He did good. These are some of the houses. This is the dung gate. I don't know why it's called the dung gate. I think. Could be wrong. Well, I'm not even going to go there. I don't know why. And I don't need to speculate. But, um, I, you know, it's, I don't. I, I don't want to live by the dung gate. I mean, can you imagine? Hey, you want to come over to dinner? Sure. Where do you live? All right, by the dung gate. Oh, you want me to bring something? Yeah. Um, the king's gardens are there. Uh, a large dam has closed off the mouth. Let's see if, whoops, uh, here's a dam here that's closed off the mouth of the waters. You've got the pool of Siloam up above inside that gives easy access to water inside. And by cutting off this, by building this wall here, this dam here, it keeps that spring, that natural spring, waters inside instead of coming outside for others. You've got the Kidron Valley and you've now got an outer wall that's also built to protect the settlement uh, that's come back from uh, uh, extended beyond the original city of David. Uh, that's another gate. Uh, so let's go back out. That's where we are situated. And it might look big because it's on the same size screen. But this is a drop compared to what you're looking at. Look, this is, this is the size of our campus. Here's a seal for King Hezekiah that they found, a bull eye. And it's got the sun with wings. And it, uh, uh, I can't read it very well. I don't do these letters that well. But that's the letter L in, in Hebrew, which means to. Um, and so this, that means this belongs to. And I think it says Hezekiah. Uh, and I'm going on memory here. Ahaz. Um, but here you've got, that's an M-L-K in essence. So Melech, uh, the king. 
Um, that was his royal seal. Hezekiah was a good king. We read in 2 Kings 18, 5 through 7, that he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was none like him among all the kings of Judah. A- after him, even. Nor among those who were before him. He held fast to Yahweh, the Lord. He didn't depart from following him. He kept the commandments of Yahweh that Yahweh had commanded to Moses. Yahweh was with him. Whenever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and refused to serve him. And that sets it up. Now, he knew he might have trouble once the Assyrians arrived, so he also built a tunnel, commissioned a tunnel. And the tunnel took the water uh, um, almost, I mean, it, it's, an, it's an absurdly long tunnel. If you go to Israel, you can still walk through the tunnel. And that tunnel still keeps the water going. Wear the right shoes, because it's uh, ankle deep when, when we were last there. But, you know, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah, all his might, how he made the pool and the conduit, the tunnel, and brought water into the city, are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah. It's interesting, they found this tunnel, and when they did, they found an inscription on the side of it, inside the tunnel, and uh, they being the archaeologists. And the inscription details how they dug it and how they dug it quickly. They're dealing, digging through limestone rock. It's not an easy thing to do. But they, they, start, they didn't have GPS either. They started at both ends of the tunnel, and they met in the middle. And it's not a straight shot. It weaves. And somehow they managed to meet. And they could hear the pickaxes as they were getting close to each other through the walls, digging it. It's an amazing thing. And it's something you want to see in Hezekiah's day when you tour Jerusalem. Time is running slow, so now we need to get to the conflict. You understand the sides. You've got Sennacherib and you've got Hezekiah. Sennacherib's dad, Sargon II, warrior extraordinaire. Gave up the throne just three or four years earlier. So the army is still good, well-trained, intact. Those soldiers who are good at impaling and charging and cutting off heads. Hezekiah, his daddy was Ahaz, an evil king who was fine paying homage to all these different gods. He didn't care. He kind of stopped the worship of, uh, 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 or precluded the worship of God the way Moses had set out. He's got altars all over the place. He's paying tribute to the king of Assyria. He is evil and wicked. Hezekiah takes the throne as a young man and immediately ditches the bad stuff of his dad. And Hezekiah restores the temple worship. And that means he sends the people out to destroy all of the altars on all of the hilltops. And they would put altars on hilltops because they thought of God being up there. Don't we still do some of that today? Not build the altars on the hilltops. But how many of us think God is up there looking down? Well, if he's up there looking down, what's he doing to people in Australia? Looking through planet Earth? Now, we, 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 we are fixated with that terminology and that idea and that metaphor and image in our brain of God being up there because we see things from above better than any other way and we know God's got perfect vision I mean there's lots that's involved there but God's up there he's also down there he's also over there and he's also over there and he's also here I mean God's omnipresent he's everywhere but they thought of him as being up there in the sky so the higher the place you built your temple the better shot you've got of of the gods hearing you. So Hezekiah tears those high places down. Hezekiah um, celebrates the Passover the way Moses had put it out. 
for the first time in, in most of these people's, well, for the first time in their life. They celebrate the Pes- Passover, Pesach, right. The piety of the people grew. If you hear, if you were here for this morning's sermon, if not, you'll hear it later. But, uh, uh, you know, Pastor Jared talked about how when we put the word of God into our hearts and into our minds, it affects our behavior. It's that sanctification process. And, and you've got the word of God going out with King Hezekiah and it's affecting the piety of the people. And I already told you he stopped the Assyrian tribute. And that's what sets up this conflict. And so we've got the conflict. Now the problem with this slide is this makes the conflict look kind of fair. This conflict is far from fair. It's a little bit more like this. Hezekiah might have a pawn to Sennacherib with all of his pieces. And the story is told uh, uh, in really four different places. You can read this story in Kings. You can read this story in Chronicles. You can read this story in chapters 36 and 39 of Isaiah. And you can read this story at the British Museum with the, the, the writing that was uh, authorized by Sennacherib, the Assyrian record of it, Sennacherib's prism. It's written in cuneiform. So after these things, well, you read after these things, it means Mark put it into context. Okay, go back. Hezekiah did good throughout all of Judah. He did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every work he undertook in the service of the house of God in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and he prospered. So then after these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, comes and invades Judah and encamps against the fortified cities to win them for himself, to recapture them. But now not just as people who will pay tribute, now they will be under subjugation and enslaved as rebellious people. So this is when you've got uh, Hezekiah doing the war planning. He planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs that were outside the city and they helped him. And that, he builds a dam. The water doesn't go outside. And a great many people were gathered. And they stopped all the springs and the brook that flowed through the land. They don't want the king of Assyria to see there's a lot of water here. And then they've got the tunnel and they've got the water inside the city. And so the city is well fortified. In the Chronicles account, it says, He set to work resolutely and built up all the wall that was broken down and raised towers upon it and outside of it he built another wall and he strengthened the milo that's a kind of a sloping type wall in the city of david he also made weapons and shields in abundance he's getting ready for war and then he has a like a pep talk coach he like gets the team ready he 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 goes uh Neon Dion, and gets him like just really jazzed for this, okay? Here's, here's what he says, and it's good. It's good speech. He set combat commanders over the people. He gathered them together to him in the square, the gate of the city, and he spoke encouragingly to them, saying, Be strong. Be courageous. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed before the king of Assyria and this horde of an army he has because there's more with us not more people more with us than with him with him it's an arm of flesh he's got a bunch of soldiers but with us it's the lord our god to help us and to fight our battles and the people took confidence in the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So Sennacherib's there. 
Sennacherib comes down. First thing he does is he takes all these little coastal towns that rebelled, Tyre and Sidon and Biblios and all of those, and he whips them. And then he starts coming down here, taking Philistia, and he surrounds Lachish. And so that's his next move. And as he surrounds Lachish, Lachish falls. Lachish is the second largest city in Jerusalem. That doesn't, I mean in Judah. That doesn't make it real big, but it was a walled city. Sennacherib is so proud of this, he has an entire set of walls in his palace carved up to show how he whipped the city of Lachish. You can see many, many of those reliefs in a dedicated room in the British Museum. And so it's this dedicated room where they've taken the, the reliefs off of the stone, off of the walls, and they put it here. A couple of them are, they've plastered to, to recreate some of them. But most of this is the original actual stone, and that, that isn't is a full cast of it. But you can see here, he's bringing in, he's got all of his soldiers, he's got all of his archers. They're all coming in to fight the city. And there are rows and rows and rows of them. Just massive amounts, all coming in, ready to fight. If you keep going down and you look at it, you'll see that he's brought siege engines and everything to go up against the city, to go up against the towers. And, and he does. And he fights it. It's hard for me to see from up close to give it to you. But, but he's fighting and you keep going down. And ultimately he wins. And look what he does. He carts off the people as slaves... but the leaders, he has them skinned alive. And he takes Lachish. And right as the end of the Lachish battle is taking place, he sends his envoys, three of his commanders, to Jerusalem, which is right up the road, because now he's got Jerusalem surrounded. And so Sennacherib goes up to Jerusalem, or or sends his three big commanders to Jerusalem. And Hezekiah gets word to him. Hezekiah says, "Uh, King's ex, um, I've done wrong, sorry, withdraw from me, whatever you impose on me, I'll bear it. And the king of Assyria says, well, first I want 300 talents of silver. I want uh, 30 talents of gold. Hezekiah gives him all the silver found in the house, the temple of God, in the treasures of the king's house. He strips the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts that he'd already overlaid with the gold. That was him doing it. And he gives it to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria takes it, but he doesn't back down. He just takes it. And then he sends his Tartan, who's a commander, his Rabsaris, who's a commander, and his Rabshaka, who's a commander, with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They go up, they come to Jerusalem, and they call out for the king. King, come on out here. King says, I ain't going out there. They sent, uh, the king of Assyria sent three of his commanders, I'll send three of mine. So he sends out Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah. And they go out there. You can read this story in 2 Kings 18, 19 through, well, actually through the rest of that chapter and even the next. I don't have time to read it to you. It's riveting reading. But instead, I'm going to give you an encapsulated view from Isaiah, where Isaiah writes about it in Isaiah 36. As the Rabshaka said to them, you say to Hezekiah, thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? How dare you think you can do this? How dare you be so cocky? Do you think mere words are strategy? You think that's power for war? Then whom do you trust now that you've rebelled against me? You think like the Pharaoh of Egypt's going to come up? He's a broken reed. You lean on him, you pierce your hand. 
You're trusting in Egypt, broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. That's Pharaoh. Is that who you're trusting in? Oh, no, you're saying, oh, we trust in Yahweh, our God. Well, didn't you take down his high places and altars? Didn't you say you're just going to worship in Jerusalem, nowhere else? By the way, did you notice when you took down those high places and altars, I've conquered all that land and all those little towns and villages and cities? Come now. I'll make a bet with you. I'll wager. Make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. This is his general talking. My master, I'm going to give you 2,000 horses. If you're able, on your part, to find 2,000 people who can even ride a horse. How can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants? You're trusting Egypt for your chariots and your horsemen. You don't even have horses. You don't know how to ride them. You got no chance. Absolutely no chance at all. And then he says, God's the one who's done this to you. It's with the, do you think it's without the Lord that I came up against this land to destroy it? Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. This continues on through Isaiah 37. But Isaiah says to him, well, take a step back. Hezekiah is like in panic mode. It's really interesting, actually. The guys first start out by saying, listen, you don't need to yell all of this stuff in Hebrew. We understand Aramaic. Let's converse in your tongue. Because they don't want everybody on the other side of the wall in Jerusalem to hear all this. The Assyrians are like, eh, 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 eh. we're speaking Hebrew on purpose. Y'all hear this? Hear what your bozo king has done? So Hezekiah doesn't know what to do. He sends to Isaiah the prophet and says, what am I, what am I doing? What do I, what do I do? And Isaiah said to the men that came to him, Say to your master, say to King Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, Don't be afraid because of these words you've heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. I'm going to put a spirit in him so he'll hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. And God does. That night, a hundred and some odd thousand are wiped out. Soldiers of the Assyrians. Disease, plague. Some scientists think based on the write-up that this is the first evidence we have of the bubonic plague. But whatever it is, wipes them out and the king goes home. But now the king's got to write this up. How's the king write this up? What's the political spin you put on this? Okay, I may run one and a half minutes over. But... Here it is. So do you remember the Old Testament story about King Sennacherib coming down from Assyria, going to conquer all of Judah? And he takes Lachish and he takes all these towns around Jerusalem and he comes to Jerusalem. And he says in Jerusalem, uh, uh, he sends his, his fella out who can speak Hebrew to the city walls. And the fella shouts out in Hebrew, hey, you guys better give up. You, you should know the king's destroyed every other city. He's going to wipe your city out. He'll pull down your walls. He'll kill everybody. Just give up while you've got a chance to survive and appease the king. And Hezekiah is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, and he's panicked. But Isaiah comes to him and says, you don't need to panic. God's got this. God is going to take care of King Sennacherib and you. And sure enough, an illness befalls King Sennacherib's army and they've got to withdraw and they never conquer Jerusalem. Now, what does Sennacherib do? He's got to go back and give a report. And he doesn't say, oh, gee, the God of Hezekiah uh, um, uh, outlasted me and, and beat me. I wasn't able to conquer him. Instead, he writes up this script right here, has it written up. And this tells the story about his conquest. And when he gets to the part about not being able to conquer Hezekiah, Instead of saying, I lost, he says, as for Hezekiah, I locked him up in his city like a canary in a cage. In other words, I put him in time out 
you know, he, it's his way of trying to put a, a political rosy spin on the fact that he was a loser when it came to trying to defeat the God of the ages. So what are our points for home? Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Because of that trust, there was none like him. Jesus was confronted by a, a, a leader in the synagogue, Jairus, whose daughter has died. And Jairus is like, uh, uh, it's too late now. And overhearing what the people said, Jesus says to Jairus, he says, don't fear, only believe. Believe, trust. Whatever crisis you've got in your life, even if it's as insurmountable apparently as Judah versus Jerusalem, I mean, as Assyria versus Jerusalem. In all of your crises, trust God. You cannot go wrong if you trust God. Second point. Hezekiah held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments the Lord had commanded Moses. You know, in your crisis, don't only trust God. But in your crisis, obey God. Jared's sermon again, this is what James is saying in that James 1, 19 and following. Don't be simply a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. Don't simply trust and believe in God, but obey God. And then your final point for home in your crisis in your life. The Lord was with him and wherever he went out, he prospered. As you trust God and as you obey God in your crisis, watch God come through because he will. That, my friends, is the lesson of Judah and Assyria. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus and then I'll see you, God willing, again next week. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask that you would move us to trust you more to follow you closer and to watch your hand in victory in our life. I pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen.